this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle or anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Luke chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, and then more properly verses 39 to 56. It's the basis of the sermon at First Free Methodist Church on December 11, 2022. It's the third week in a series of messages we call The With Us God, a God who abides with us and abides with us in Christian community. It's our series through the season of Advent and Christmas here at First Free. We turn our attention again to Luke's story of Jesus's nativity, and this particular week's text highlights the meeting between Elizabeth and Mary, and then contains one of the most remarkable pieces of uh, writing or literature in the entire New Testament, which is the Magnificat, beginning at verse 46. But first, before the Magnificat, there's this meeting of the mothers that takes place. Both Elizabeth, who of course is married to Zechariah, and both of them will become parents of John the Baptist, and then Mary, who pays a visit to her relative Elizabeth, who is uh, either married to Joseph by now, or at least betrothed to him for sure, and is pregnant with Jesus. Now, Mary traveled from Nazareth to Zechariah's home, where Elizabeth would be. That's about an 80 to 90 mile journey, depending on what path she would have taken. Probably about three or four days traveling to the south in order to arrive where Mary lived. Part of the reason there's a little ambiguity about this is that uh, scholars are not sure where Zechariah and Elizabeth actually lived, whether outside of the ancient city of Hebron or in the city that has been the traditional location since the 6th century that is known today as Ein Karim. Now, when Mary first arrives, Mary is the one who greets Elizabeth first. And when Mary greets Elizabeth first, it says that Elizabeth's baby in her womb leapt for joy. This is not an uncommon motif in the Bible of of children before they're born having some form of interaction in the story as it plays out. Especially in this particular story, Ein Karim happens to be a a location that's relative to Jerusalem, not many miles away, and it has a a story that uh, the ark ascended to the city of Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant, that King David brought into the city for the first time. It says that he leapt and danced before the Lord, and they came through Ein Karim. So there's a little bit of a, uh, a recollection or a recalling here of this baby, John the Baptist, leaping for joy in Elizabeth's womb, somewhat akin to David uh, celebrating and leaping for joy before the Ark. It's important connection because the Ark really was considered to be the, the very presence of God among the people. And so in the same way, uh, Mary represents the ark, if you will, carrying the very presence of God, Jesus, in her womb. And so uh, John the Baptist leaps for joy as, as if David were leading the ark into Jerusalem. Then the story really begins to flower beautifully. It says in verse 42, she cried out with a loud voice. This is Elizabeth. And she says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened that the mother of my Lord would come to me? And then she describes how 
uh, the baby in her womb leapt for joy. Uh, This kind of rhetorical question that Elizabeth puts forth is a powerful one. Uh, She was filled with the Spirit, and she cried out with this loud voice. And this is really the way Luke loves to tie pieces of his story together, in that it's the movement of the Holy Spirit in and through people that continue in the Gospel of Luke and then into the book of Acts that really exemplifies how people experience the very presence of God. There's less and less of a cognitive recognition of God, in other words, the way we think about it, but in Luke's gospel, it's more experience. The Holy Spirit moves, is imminent, is right in front of you, and and is heir apparent in the story. It's, it's impossible to miss the power and movement of the Holy Spirit that gave her utterance. Now, remember, Elizabeth has been in hiding, uh, if you will, um, hiding at home for the last five months, as we learned in the story of Zechariah that he went home to be with Elizabeth, she became pregnant, and they stayed in seclusion for five months. So it's during this time uh, when Elizabeth is at home that Mary comes to visit her. And she says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And talks talks about Mary as being the mother of my Lord. It's really remarkable language that there's an acknowledgement on Elizabeth's part that Mary is the mother of the Lord, that There's an acknowledgement of the messianic nature of Mary's pregnancy. Now, how this understanding comes about is left for us to discern. It's either by the power of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps uh, Zechariah uh, was uh, uh, able to communicate in some way (laughs) that uh, uh, without using words that Elizabeth could understand what was going on. But Elizabeth makes this affirmation that Mary is the mother of the Lord. And this is really important for Mary to hear. It delivers a confirmation to her of what's happening in her and in herself. And the central affirmation is this. Blessed is she who believed what was spoken by the Lord. It's very important. Verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. This is key because what we're going to learn throughout this story and what we learned uh, even in the the previous text is that Mary is celebrated and blessed because of the way in which she has cooperated with the movement of the Holy Spirit. And this is a form of great blessing and gratitude. And that's the key passageway for us here, that blessing and gratitude are linked together. Elizabeth understands the very nature of Mary's pregnancy and its significance. To be honest, the toppling of empires will come about from these two women. John the Baptist, and Jesus. And in many ways, these toppling of these empires is, the, is the, at that point in time, the kind of the, the corrupt leadership of much of the Jewish tradition within Jerusalem that eventually would give rise to a new form of rabbinic Judaism that we really, really uh, understand even to this day. But more importantly, the toppling of Roman Empire, the way in which Christianity becomes a subversion to the Roman Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome, that it is supplanted by the peace of the Lord Jesus. These two women are significant in that they become the agents through whom God moves powerfully in human history. And Elizabeth affirms Mary's blessedness in this story no less than three times. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is she who believed. These are all affirming Mary's choice and state of being. It's focusing 
on the blessing here is important, and it overshadows the fact that Mary found herself pregnant, unwed. And it, in many ways, this, this statement of blessing is a way of affirming the positive work that God is doing in their midst, even in the, even in the, the reality of the challenges each of these two women are facing. Elizabeth being very old, well past childbearing years, have, getting ready to give birth to a son, John the Baptist, and Mary uh, being pregnant, even inappropriately, culturally speaking, before her own marriage. These two women stand at these kind of two opposite polarities of the chronology of when, in the ancient world, women had children. And in the midst of all of those challenges and all of those difficulties, they choose to lift up blessing and gratitude. There's a confidence in this. It's resounding. These two courageous women are lifting up an important word for us to hear, that they focus on blessing, regardless of circumstance. And when we do that, it opens a doorway to thanksgiving and to gratitude. Mary responds to these words by Elizabeth uh, through what is called the Magnificat. That's this, uh, this uh, song of Mary that begins at verse 46 and extends all the way down to verse 55. This song of Mary or this Magnificat is really divided into two parts. Verses 46 to 50 is the first part. And then there's the second part, verses 51 to 55. The Magnificat is a beautifully structured piece of literature that Luke alone contains in his gospel. It's Mary's song of praise, and it's an expression of, of Mary's thanksgiving along with that of Elizabeth. The Magnificat, from verse 46 all the way to 55, is in many ways patterned after the song of Hannah, who would be the mother of the prophet Samuel. And you can read that story in 1 Samuel. There is a song of Hannah when she becomes pregnant that is very, very similar to this. In some ways, Luke patterns the song of Mary after that very same song of Hannah, who would be the mother of Samuel. And it's in many ways a Jewish expression of faith. It's a Jewish affirmation that, that Mary lifts up here, but Luke adapts it into a Greek form using uh, forms that the Greek-speaking world would understand, and especially the grammar that it contains is rather interesting so that Greek readers would be able to understand the movement and the work of God. Now, many scholars believe that stories like this and Mary's meeting with Elizabeth and the Magnificat come from Mary herself. Um, more and more scholars believe that Mary spent time with Luke during the early days of the church following Pentecost. And so this is the reason why Luke contains unique stories about Mary's experiences before the birth of Jesus, whereas the other gospel writers did not have any of these stories at all. Now, verses 45 to 50, the first part of the Magnificat, are rear-looking. In other words, they are looking backwards into the past in a way that combines the, the psalmic tradition of affirming the past act of God. So the psalmic tradition is that which is contained in the book of Psalms. So you can look at the book of Psalms and begin reading them. And as you read the book of Psalms, you'll find that many of the writers of the Psalms reflect on the past actions of God. Like, for example, the psalmist might reflect on the Exodus experience of Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and then tries to extrapolate that meaning on the present circumstance of the Israelites or the Jews. So there's this kind of rear-looking way in which the Psalms have a powerful voice 
And in many ways, Mary is using that very same thing at the beginning of the Magnificat. She's reflecting on her own experience of God's movement in her midst. She says, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond servant. These verbs throughout this entire section are in the the equivalent of our past tense. They're referring to past actions. It's called the perfect tense, that they're looking back to what has been done in the past. So these opening verses are Mary's reflection, even at this point. She hasn't even given birth to Jesus, but she's reflecting with a sense of thanksgiving and power for how God has used her. In verse 49, she says, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is to generation after generation toward those who fear him. It's just a beautiful, beautiful text in which she's pointing to God's saving acts, that what God is doing uh, as a savior in this uh, story that she's lifting up in the Magnificat. She talks about her state and that God has had regard for the humble state of uh, his bond servant. And she talks about this way of being blessed as uh, as an experience that she's not worthy of, but yet at the same time, it gives her a great honor. She holds this tension very well. So we should not mistake her affirmation as an affirmation of her fortune. She's simply stating that her condition, being a humble servant of God, then makes God's acts all the greater. This is not some kind of humble brag she's doing here at the beginning of the Magnificat. Her blessedness as a servant of God is precisely based on her humility. She says, the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. That God's mercy is from generation to generation to those who fear him. This is all a part of the abiding work of God's uh, presence and power which is exemplified in mercy, and it's mercy toward those who fear him. So fear must be carefully understood. Fear does not mean terror here. Fear simply means an acknowledgement of who God is relative to who we are, and that there's a tremendous differentiation between the two, and that humility and fear in some ways are properly related. In other words, there's a way in which Mary understands herself in right regard. This is a key passageway for us, a key passageway, that God's movement is always toward goodness and mercy. And this is what Mary proclaims in the Magnificat. Mary's clear in her reflections on what God has done for her. She acknowledges her state as a humble servant and also God's state in terms of God's greatness. You know, often you know, we struggle in our own lives at moments in time where we somehow think that God is far off or even aloof. So while we might perceive that from time to time, what we need to be reminded in Mary's great uh, proclamation in the Magnificent Magnificat is that God-giving work is always at play. God is always moving. And this becomes an important affirmation for us, even in the midst of uncertainty. This is where scripture becomes a powerful tool for us. And when we read scripture, we read about the mighty acts of God, how God moved through humble servants, how God did greatness in the past. And when we read those stories in the scriptures, we can affirm how we've even seen it in our own lives. So can any of us claim to be blessed? 
Well, yes, all of us can claim to be blessed, rightly so. And if that's the truth, we have to continually affirm that, even in those moments where we simply feel a bit estranged or a bit lost or confused. God is always working for good and for mercy. The second half of the Magnificat shifts gears in verses 51 to 56. This is really now a call to the future. Mary now begins to proclaim the implications of what's happening through her and in her. She begins to see her pregnancy and the child that will come forth in light of what God will do and perform in that moment. She frames each of these statements from 51, verse 51 onward in what's called the aorist tense. It's a different form of the past tense that we don't have quite as clearly in English. The aorist tense is a tense of a verb that it's an action that occurs in the past, but we don't know when that action ended. In other words, it started in the past, but it may even be continuing in the present. It, it doesn't give us a, um, a beginning and an end to the action. It only gives us a beginning of the action. And, and this makes this entire section just a little bit unusual from verse 51 onward. Uh, because the aorist verse, the aorist tense depends on the perspective of the present. In other words, where I'm sitting at in a moment in time, as I'm looking back, am I seeing what's happening in the past as continuing into my present? Or is it going to continue past my present into the future? I know that sounds a little confusing, but it's important because the, the grammar of this particular section creates a tension for us. So what Mary is saying that God has and is doing something. And that ambiguity around when this is happening helps us see the timeless work of God in Jesus. So in this sense, she's addressing the consistency of God's acts in the past, in Jesus, and even into the future. God has and is doing mighty deeds with his arms, scattering the proud, brought down rulers, exalted the humble, filled the hungry, sent the rich away, brought help to Israel in the remembrance of his mercy, just as he spoke to Abraham. You can read all of these statements that Mary lifts up as a celebration of what God has, is, and will do. There's a timelessness to how she talks about it and that how that work is ongoing and in many ways continuing. So Mary not only understands how God has worked in her own life, she also understands that which is now going to happen outside of her. In other words, when Jesus comes into being, what he will do when he is born is going to change the landscape of what everything in this world looks like. And what she affirms for us is what our key passageway is here, that all hope is grounded in God's grace. Mary's affirmation is about how those who have power and wealth will lose it and how those who are oppressed will gain it. It's a, it's a turning of tables. She's articulating in many ways the revolution that God is going to bring into being in Jesus Christ. This is the a moment in which she proclaims the hope that's actually carried in her own womb. This continually affirms the reality for me of her being the first Christian believer that before Jesus is born, before he preaches a sermon, before he does a healing, before he does some kind of miracle, even before the cross and resurrection, Mary believes in the very work that God is going to do 
through Jesus. She believes in the gospel even before Jesus has been born. So Mary's centrality or affirmation of God's grace is a model for us. It's one, I think, the, the way this text is written, it's one for us to be, to be imitating. Given her dire situation, as a young woman, not married, pregnant, she must place all her hope in God. And for many of us, that hope is, a, is an option among many. It's like we, we live our lives uh, with a way in which our hope is in God, but that may not permeate or, or soak into every part of our life. But for Mary, it does. It's holistic. Every part of her finds a hope in God. And so there's a way in which her allegiance to the divine call, the way in which she aligns to it, is different from our own at times. For many of us, we, we have um, kind of a, a casual faith that's a faith that we access when needed versus Mary's kind of faith, which exemplifies a total dependency on God's grace and hope for her life. This is a powerful truth for us to remember that all hope is grounded in God's grace. And what God invites us into is this continual rhythm of living and experiencing the blessings of God and passing those blessings on through us. If you have comments or reflections on this week's podcast, I invite you to visit my website, revcraig.com. Click on news in the upper right-hand corner and on the drop-down menu, you'll see the word podcasts. Then click on this week's episode. Leave a comment there and I'd be happy to connect with you in that space. I'd also invite you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, firstremethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.